side at midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. the other side of midnight i'm frank morano it is no secret that we have covered ufos or uaps whatever you want to call them a great deal we have had every possible variety of guests on this subject we have had people who are so skeptical about the concept that they believe the very idea of intelligent life anywhere other than earth is something better suited for a star trek episode and We've had people who claim they were abducted multiple times. They're on a first-name basis with multiple alien species. There have been people who claim that the U.S. government is hiding alien aircraft and, in some cases, even alien bodies. And we talk to people who believe the folks at the Pentagon are just as in the dark about this as we are. We've had journalists on, and we've had people who proudly proclaim themselves debunkers. One thing that many of them have had in common, though, is that they so often cite the work of one man. In part, it's because his Ivy League academic credentials are above reproach. And in part, it's because depending on where you are on the question of UAPs or UFOs, there's something in his work that you can point to which may bolster your argument. A few years ago, Avi Loeb, who is a professor of science at Harvard University, in fact, he's the longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, he made international headlines by saying that he thought that uh, the comet Amuamua might actually be an alien probe. Now, he's got a new book out in which he details his journey to, of all places, the bottom of the ocean to prove or to attempt to prove extraterrestrial contact. I'm very pleased uh, to welcome back to the program the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, the head of the Galileo Project, a New York Times bestselling author, and the author of the latest book, of the newest book, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars, Professor Avi Loeb. Professor Loeb, it's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, let's give people a little bit of uh, background with the, your journey that led to this book. I mentioned your work with Oumuamua. We've spoken about that before. That was a comet which uh, you said didn't look like a lot of other comets that we encounter regularly. Why does this metal at the bottom of the ocean that you write about in Interstellar matter? And why did you think it might matter? Well, this was actually the very first object uh, 
that was uh, from outside the solar system uh, discovered by humans. And uh, it was uh, it collided with Earth uh, back on January 8, 2014. And the fireball that uh, was created as a result of its friction with air uh, was uh, spotted by U.S. government satellites. And what was unusual about it is it was moving very fast much faster than necessary to escape from the solar system. And so the conclusion that we drew five years later was that this indeed came from interstellar space. But moreover, uh, the U.S. government released the data about uh, where it exploded uh, above the Pacific Ocean, and we were able to conclude that its material strength was uh, higher. Uh, It was tougher than all space rocks, 272 of them, that were cataloged by NASA over the past decade. And uh, because it was fast and and very uh, tough, uh, uh, it came to my mind that it could be a Voyager like a meteor. Just imagine our own spacecraft leaving the solar system and colliding with a planet like Earth far away. Uh, It would appear as a meteor of unusual material strength and speed. And to find out what uh, this uh, object was made of, uh, I uh, led an expedition to the Pacific Ocean, and we were able to collect the molten fragments uh, from the surface of this object when it exploded in the atmosphere. They um, uh, were collected from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, about uh, a mile deep, across a region of uh, seven miles in size. These uh, particles were a millimeter in size, roughly the size of a grain of sand. And it was very challenging to find them, but um, we did uh, bring the material back to Harvard University and analyzed it with the best uh, mass spectrometer that the world has to offer. And we realized that those uh, extra uh, particles that were found along the meteor path had uh, a composition that was never seen in the solar system, not on Earth, not uh, on the moon or on Mars or asteroids. Uh, So we concluded that for two reasons, one, the speed of the object, and the second is the composition. Uh, This is the first interstellar object that uh, humanity discovered. And uh, the next step is to decide whether it was technological in origin or uh, natural. Uh, And a simple way to tell that is by finding a big piece of the object, which we intend to do in an expedition uh, over the coming year. Um, so a follow-up to the previous one, we will use uh, different uh, tools to find those big pieces. And obviously, we will be able to tell the difference between a rock and a technological gadget, because a gadget may have uh, buttons on it or screws, and uh, we would be able to say perhaps what its purpose was. Well, and that leads me to my next question, which I guess is the most obvious one. Just because an object is from outside the solar system, how do we know if it's alien technology? Couldn't it have been just a naturally occurring meteor from outside the solar system? Yes. So uh, one approach that we took already is to examine the composition, the material making of uh, what came from this object. And uh, for example, just imagine molten droplets from semiconductors or from computer screens. They would have um, abundances of elements that are very different than what uh, you find in rocks. 
because semiconductors use specific elements that are rare in nature. And uh, indeed, we found <laughs> in the analysis that we did, we found some elements that are ab more abundant than solar system materials by factors of hundreds. Uh, these are elements like beryllium, uh, lanthanum, uh, uranium. We call this composition Belau for these elements. Uh, but um, it's unclear whether that is because it was used for technological purpose or because it's uh, natural from some very unusual origin. And in the paper that we wrote, we mentioned uh, that it could have uh, originated from uh, a planet that has a molten magma, a magma ocean. Uh, basically, the rock is melted uh, on the surface of that planet. Then you can separate elements. And those that we find will be more likely to be on the surface of the object and the other elements will sink uh, towards an iron core near the center because they have affinity to iron. So there is a natural process that could give you the kind of composition that uh, we discovered from outside the solar system. But uh, obviously, if we find a big piece, we will be able to tell. Your process for digging up this material, this metal at the bottom of the ocean, the expedition sounds like it could be a movie in and of itself. And I know you cover it in the book Interstellar. Tell folks how you went about acquiring these materials. Right. Actually, there is a movie. <laughs> ah, of uh, course there, there were, is. There were actually uh, uh, of the order of uh, 50, five zero filmmakers and producers who approached me before the expedition. They wanted to be on the ship. I chose one. Uh, and uh, uh, so it will be hopefully out to the public within a year or two. But um, um, the first challenge was to get funded because this expedition cost us one and a half million dollars. And uh, I just uh, announced it after we had the the government data on this meteor and within a few months um, uh, Charles Hoskinson came forward and I didn't know him he arranged the zoom meeting with me and said you have the money so that um, allowed us to to move forward and uh, I recruited a team of um, about 28 uh, individuals uh, they are the best uh, among uh, ocean expedition leaders and uh, some engineers some uh, navigators and so forth and um, and um, we built a sled with magnets on both sides that we dragged on the ocean floor uh, with the ship. It was connected wow. by a cable that was uh, three miles long. Now, the first challenge in the first day was to keep the sled on the ocean floor, and it would basically get uh, lifted by the cable uh, and was kiting above the ocean floor. And then the engineers realized that if we go with the current, they can keep it on the ocean floor. So we started collecting materials, but mo most of the material was black powder, basically uh, volcanic ash uh, that is of no interest to us. And after the sixth day, uh, I wrote a, a diary report. I, altogether, I wrote uh, 43 diary reports that were re read uh, by um, millions of people around the world. Uh, they were posted on medium.com. And they were translated to Spanish. And um, on the sixth day, I said, where are the spherols? These are the molten droplets that we were after uh, because we didn't find them yet. Uh, and the expedition was then uh, 14 days long. So it was sort of near the middle of the trip. 
and then uh, we started uh, filtering out the uh, volcanic ash uh, by using a mesh. And uh, we took the bigger particles, put them under a microscope, and uh, uh, then lo and behold, we found the first uh, spherol, and I hugged the person who found it. Uh, basically, I was thrilled because I knew that if you find an ant in the kitchen, there must be many more out there. And sure enough, uh, altogether, we found 50 of them on the boat. But uh, when we brought the materials back to Harvard, uh, a summer intern of mine, uh, Sophie Bergstrom, found uh, more than 600 additional ones. So we have... Uh, Right now, about 700 of them. Wow. I mean, that's remarkable. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard. Uh, he's got a new book out talking about this discovery and this quest. It's called Interstellar, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life and, fut- and Our Future in the Stars. Um, the question that I have may be impossible for you to answer, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Do you have a theory? as to whether the alien intelligence that's responsible for these metal droplets at the bottom of the ocean, if it is an alien intelligence, do you have a theory as to whether or not that's the same alien intelligence that may have sent the Amuamua probe, or do you think it might be something different? Um, We don't know. I mean, uh, probably different because there are so many stars in the Milky Way galaxy. There are uh, tens of billions of them, and Who knows whether one came uh, together with the other. Uh, Oumuamua was um, not moving very fast in the frame of the Milky Way galaxy. In fact, it was like a buoy uh, sitting at rest. Uh, And then the solar system bumped into it uh, like a giant ship. Uh, So, And this object, on the other hand, outside the solar system, was moving very fast, faster than 95% of the stars. Uh, And so... uh, uh, it probably came from another origin based on its speed. Um, and uh, Oumuamua was uh, flat in its shape. Um, uh, I suggested that it was pushed uh, by reflecting sunlight. And uh, three years later, there was an object found that was reflected by, was reflecting sunlight and was pushed as a result of that. Uh, and it ended up being a rocket booster that NASA launched in 1966. It had thin walls that are made of stainless steel, and it didn't evaporate, just like Oumuamua. It didn't show any cometary tails. So um, my suggestion was that uh, Oumuamua, just like 2020 SO, this object from NASA, um, was artificial in origin, uh, but uh, it probably served uh, a completely different purpose than uh, any object like this meteor, because this meteor might be just space trash, uh, the kind of meteor that uh, Voyager would, would be uh, once it exits the solar system. It will not be functional anymore, uh, and it's not uh, flat in its shape. Uh, so there could be different types of uh, interstellar objects, and I don't think they are related, the two of them. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's helpful. Um, you've been looking openly in a very scientific, serious manner for extraterrestrial life for a few years now, you had a stellar academic career, longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, founding director of Harvard's uh, Black Hole Initiative. I don't know of many astronomers in academia with more credibility than you do. I'm curious 
the issue of searching for extraterrestrial life has, at least until recently, been viewed as somewhat fringe by mainstream sections of society. I'm curious, are you looked at any differently these days by your Harvard colleagues than before you started openly working on this stuff? No, I I don't feel that. Uh, I have a group of uh, students and postdocs working with me, and uh, people who know me recognize that I haven't changed. It's just that I find this uh, frontier to be of great interest because the public cares about it. And I'm trying to advocate for common sense. You know, we, humanity, launched uh, probes to space and just imagine other technological civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy doing the same. And all we are doing is checking if we can find any packages uh, in our backyard or near our mailbox. That's all. And to me, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't see that as any um, as an idea that is more fringe than um, speaking about extra dimensions or the no, multiverse right. or our string theory that are quite popular. Uh, I don't feel uh, any direct uh, uh, issues with people that surround me at Harvard or, or elsewhere that I interact all the time, except for a, a, a few people that keep repeating uh, insults uh, to reporters, um, uh, one from Arizona State University. And, you know, the problem they have is they are used to uh, the idea that anything in the sky, any object in the sky that comes to Earth must be a rock or a stone, uh, because these are the typical meteors from the solar system. And they would say that the U.S. government data must be wrong because you cannot fit the data that the U.S. Space Command provided uh, with a model for a stone. And I say, you know, you should respect the U.S. Space Command. They actually went back and checked their data and confirmed the assertion that this is an interstellar object. So you better change your model. Maybe this object is not a stone. Instead, these people are very arrogant. They say the data is wrong. They say that what I'm doing it does not follow the scientific method, where I'm actually doing exactly what the asks for. I'm right. going to the Pacific Ocean, putting a lot of effort, trying to collect materials, evidence, then studying it. That's exactly the scientific method. Those people are sitting on their chairs and making negative comments all the time right. and attacking right. me personally, which I, you know, I find non, non-scientific. And I think their problem should be dealt with by their therapist, not by me. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the other thing I would say is that I'm really struck by the fact that uh, childhood, uh, child, childlike uh, bullying is more prevalent for, for this community of people than childlike curiosity. Right. Because, you know, I'm just curious. Uh, and they are just bullying all the time, keep repeating. And reporters pay attention to them because it makes uh, their stories more clickbait uh, uh, receptive. So uh, a lot of people like controversy, but it's not controversial at all. I'm following the scientific method, and these people are just expressing negative comments. Speaking of therapy, I think he was at Harvard before you joined the faculty there. 
I'm wondering if you can empathize at all with uh, John Mack, who was uh, a Harvard uh, psychiatrist uh, and professor. I think he might have even been the head of the Department of Psychiatry. And he interviewed a lot of people who claimed that they'd been abducted by aliens. And uh, he found that in his experience that they were telling the truth. And he had said before he passed away that he had become something of a pariah. I'm glad to see that's not the case with you. Did you know John Mack at all? No, I didn't know him. And there is a a fundamental difference between uh, the approach that he and I are taking because he was basing anything he said on what he hears from humans, from people. And uh, I don't trust uh, people because uh, they have uh, ulterior motives. They can hallucinate, imagine things. You know, when there is a car accident, uh, people involved give you completely different reports. Um, the uh, FIFA, you know, in the U.S., uh, in the uh, Soccer World Cup, um, did not, uh, when there was a, a decision to be made by the referee, they did not ask the players, <laughs> did the, uh, the ball cross uh, the line of the goal? They uh, went to use video uh, cameras that provided them with the data. And that is the way science is done in, in physics. You don't rely on what people say. You use instruments to infer uh, what is happening because, you know, people can tell you anything. And uh, John Mack, on the other hand, he just focused on people. So if someone said, I experienced this and that, he would pay attention. That will be his data. For me, it doesn't carry any water. Understood. So, uh, so that's a major difference. And as a result, he could have been fooled by uh, people who say the same thing, but all of them, all of them had no such experience in reality, uh, and they all imagined things. And uh, for me, that's irrelevant anyway, because, you know, in the Galileo project, we have a set of instruments measuring things uh, in the sky, taking uh, images. And in the context of this meteor, we went there, collected materials, and studied it with instruments. Let me end with this, Professor Loeb, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. The um, The government has made a big deal about issuing these reports where they're claiming to declassify UAP material. Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, is uh, backing legislation to declassify even more of this. Congress has been very, very vocal about sort of revamping the process for reporting UAPs, as has NASA. Is this a a big deal? Is this helpful to your efforts at determining what's out there? Definitely, because it's possible that the U.S. government has information or materials that uh, uh, are far better uh, than uh, what we know. Uh, and uh, their day job is uh, to monitor uh, the sky uh, all the time for national security purposes. And every now and then they might see something unusual. You know, astronomers look at a small piece of the sky and they usually focus on very distant forces. So if something flies overhead, they ignore it. So it's possible the government has data. And uh, the fact that Uh, serious politicians uh, consider it seriously, I think it's a great plus because maybe we will get uh, access to that data or or materials if they exist. I don't know that they exist because they were never released uh, uh, to my attention. And as a scientist, I would be delighted to help government figure out the nature of things that came from outside the solar system and what they tell us about 
our neighbors. Professor Avi Loeb, I really appreciate the time. I appreciate the work you're doing even more. People can read about it in Interstellar, the search for extraterrestrial life and our future in the stars. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.